Blog Talk Radio. And thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. We're the show that tackles some pretty difficult topics sometimes. And uh, we have, I think, a, not a difficult topic, an interesting topic today. And uh, we are here with um, our guest. And um, well, I'm going to let you introduce yourself because, you're, you're, Lisa, your your background is so extensive. Um, why don't you tell us about who you are and what you're doing? Okay, thank you. Thank you so much for hosting this show. Um, so my name is Lisa James, and I direct our health programs at Futures Without Violence, which is a national nonprofit that's been working for over 30 years to promote social justice, um, health, and preventing and ending um, violence against women and children. Um, and part of the work that we do, particularly with healthcare, um, and we've been working on a national health initiative on um, domestic and sexual violence for over 20 years, um, supported by the Department of Health and Human Services, actually um, because of the Family Violence uh, Prevention and Services Act that was put into place um, way back in the 80s. Um, And as a result of this um, support, uh, we have been training healthcare providers, nurses, and doctors um, to partner with domestic violence um, and sexual violence advocates to really work to improve the health and safety of survivors of violence. Great. Excuse me. And we, of course, have been talking about domestic violence uh, intersecting with health care for a long time. I mean, for as long as I can remember. And we've passed the stage, or I've been at the stage where I've tried to convince my family doctor to have some brochures in the restroom and things like that. (laughs) Um, And I have to tell you that at one point, this was several years ago, (coughs) excuse me, and I was speaking with my family doctor on a regular visit, and I said, you know, you've never asked me about domestic violence in all my years coming here. And she said, well, I know it's important, but the thing is is that if we ask about it, then we're going to have to know what to do about it, and we just don't have the time. Well, I almost fell off right. the table. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and and this was a lovely woman. You know, I mean, she was a, a dedicated healthcare professional. She was a physician. That she, I mean, lovely woman. And yet, boom, there you go. So is right. that kind of an attitude still around? Um, you, you know, what what? How reflect? How common was that kind of an attitude? Probably ten years ago, uh, when I heard it, and now. Well, very common 10 years ago, I would say, and I'd say sadly still pretty common now. Um, I think it's changing. I know it's changing. We've seen a real shift um, by the healthcare system um, to support talking about violence in the clinical setting. Um, but I think um, average provider, your average provider, really does face a lot of um, challenges around time constraints and how much time they have with each uh, patient and a lot of demands around, um, you know, the different types of issues to address during a, a visit. However, um, you know, we're really seeing some incredibly promising practices um, across the country and, and being able to demonstrate that you can do this work in an effective manner, um, you can do it efficiently, and that uh, actually by not doing it, you're really uh, missing the boat in terms of trying to improve those long-term health consequences that all of us um, are working towards in terms of improving health and safety of survivors. So I'd say when we first started this... Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say when we first started this work, we were primarily thinking about uh, injuries related to domestic violence and so thinking about those broken bones and black eyes and now we're really, un- because of decades of research, we're understanding the long-term health consequences of abuse and understanding that that survivors of violence are much more likely to face a whole host of healthcare, um, chronic health issues from heart disease to stroke to pregnancy complications, even asthma, and of course depression and and reproductive and sexual health um, uh, poor consequences. So, 
I think what's happened is the healthcare providers are really seeing that they that this is a, an important health issue and they can make the time if they work in partnership with their local uh, domestic violence program so that they they don't have to do it alone. They can ask routinely and they can also partner with their local programs for long-term support. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned the broken bones, you know, the physical violence, because, of course, you know, the whole um, uh, education and, and development of, of um, domestic violence as a, as a community issue started around those that physical violence, the broken bones and the black eyes, as you mentioned. And we've been dealing with that for 30 years. And I think, really, I think we've done a really great job of that. Uh, I don't think you would be able to find too many people who go, yeah, broken bones and black eyes are great for women. You know, I mean, we, we, we really need that. Most people are on board that that's a really bad thing. But they don't get the subtler forms of control and abuse. When you talk with physicians, you're, you're talking, um, basically, they're dealing with physical health. But they're also dealing with other aspects of health. So would you say that the message to physicians is starting to segue more in from physical as as well as the um, uh, subtler forms of domestic violence as far as educating them? Yeah, I really would. And it's not away from the physical violence and definitely don't mean to um, diminish the, the, the importance and the pain involved in the physical violence. But Actually, particularly um, in primary care, care clinics, in the school-based health centers that we work with, and, and the women's health centers that we work with, we really um, focus on the whole range of abusive behaviors and how it impacts health. And also, importantly, what is the role of the healthcare provider right then and there in the clinic? So let me give you a couple of examples. Um, we know that part of that coercive um, behavior that perpetrators of domestic violence um, use. It can really range from um, emotional abuse um, to physical to sexual abuse, but it also really includes um, preventing their partner from going to the healthcare um, setting to seek care, actually interfering with their care plan. Um, we've heard stories of um, of partners taking uh, an inhaler away from asthmatic patients, um, interfering with birth control to try to get their partners pregnant when they don't want to be, um, interfering with um, their uh, interest in exercising for better health. So there's a whole host of um, controlling and coercive behaviors that that really do impact the health and safety of um, the patients that these providers are seeing. And so when you start to ask about violence and understand those connections, you can really work with a patient to develop a care plan that takes into consideration, you know, the environment that she um, or he is living in. Mm-hmm. And that, yeah. that shift about really focusing on the health issue, what's the role of the provider and in addressing the health issue in a trauma-informed way and then partnering up with their local domestic violence programs to really be the experts to help them, help help the patient if they're interested in that referral in a long-term way around safety planning and so forth. Yeah. Um, now, you bring up the, the role. Well, you know what? I'm negligent here. I need to toss out our phone number in case somebody would like to join our conversation. 646 378 Zero four three zero. That's six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. Please give us a call. Join us with your thoughts, or maybe if you have an example of healthcare intersecting with domestic violence, and uh, let us know. Also, we have our chat room open, and uh, on the website you can click on the chat and uh, type in a question if you would like, and uh, I'll be happy to share it with Lisa on the air. So again, six four six three seven eight zero four three zero. Now, Lisa, you were talking about the role of healthcare, and I have to tell you that uh, I'm, there have been times, two issues with that. There have been times in my life when I've gone to a visit, physician, and I have felt that their questions were invasive and and unnecessary, and intrusive, and I wasn't about to tell them the truth anyway, because of mm-hmm. my attitude about that. Um, uh, mm-hmm. Part of me thinks I'm coming to you for this, this, and this, and you're asking me about that, that, and that, and that, quite frankly, is none of your business, doctor. Um, do you see that 
at all? I mean, is that an issue when it comes to asking health care providers to intercede or intersect or inter- put themselves mm-hmm. into a scenario for domestic violence? Mm-hmm. You know, it has come up primarily from the perspective of the providers feeling worried that their patients are going to find these um, questions or um, this kind of conversation invasive. But actually, um, largely, that's not the case. Um, There's been a number of studies, and um, patients really support um, providers talking about violence. Um, They're glad that they're, um, they're asking about violence, and they recognize that uh, how important it is to connect it to their health. So, uh, so I'm just a cranky old bat. Well, no, it's, I, I, it's a great question, but it, generally speaking, people don't find it invasive. But I think you're raising an important point, which is they also might not be ready to disclose anything, or they, of course, might not be experiencing violence. And so that's why we are really or they might not know call. that they're experiencing exactly, violence. exactly, and they're just they're there for their annual checkup, and this is maybe the first time they've been thinking about it in in this way. So that's why we've really moved away from this sort of checklist approach to a screening question that that really only um, thinks about disclosure to domestic violence as a sort of measure of success around providers' response. And what that means is we're, we're encouraging providers to um, – to provide universal education around um, violence and its impact on health. So what that looks like is something like I'm seeing so much violence in my patients' um, lives that I'm talking to all my patients about healthy and unhealthy relationships, you know, and starting off the conversation very briefly with that, um, giving a few examples that are sort of relevant to that patient, asking directly, is this something that's happening to you? And if the patient says no, still providing resources around should this ever happen to you or a friend or a family member, you know that you can come here for help. So you're opening the door for a conversation. You're looking at the links between health and violence, but you're not relying on that patient to say yes or no per se and, you know, disclose if they're not ready to do that. And largely um, we've been doing this work over in a variety of different um, clinics and states across the country and patient, both patients and providers are really um, welcoming this approach, and, and we get very, very positive feedback. Do, of Where course, we have that issue to... of well, – okay. we do have the issue right now. I mean, I don't know if you've gone to the doctors lately. I have, and, and it's like everything is so fast. They have such limited time. There's so many people there. And, you know, we are asking healthcare providers to throw in one more thing that they need to mm-hmm. ask about. I mean, I can't tell mm-hmm. you how many, I, I'll go to the doctor for a hangnail, and the next thing you know, I've got, uh, you know, 15 different types of questions I'm supposed to answer while they're sitting at their computers and not looking at me in the face. Exactly. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, so you know, I mean, I, I'm not questioning the value of having healthcare providers do this. I mean, obviously, you know, it, it, it's very important. But from a practical standpoint, how much can they glean um, from this? Mm-hmm. How beneficial is it? Are we putting an undue burden on uh, the healthcare providers uh, along with everything else? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, one thing you don't want to see happen, and this is where you do get negative feedback, is to have a provider run through that checklist, you know, looking at the screen and not looking up. Um, and and you don't, you can't, you really can't have that, that kind of question um, answered in that way. It's basically just not... Um, creating an environment in which somebody felt that they could um, talk about abuse. But what we're finding is um, because of the long-term health consequences of um, domestic violence is that the patients are there for um, repeated health issues. And actually, if you get to the core of what they're um, experiencing, you can provide more efficient care. So Again, it doesn't take much time to move away from that checklist, have a brief conversation. Many of the providers that we train do this in one to two minutes, talking about the information, um, sharing it with them, uh, their patients, and then moving on to their uh, health issue. So um, there's lots of ways that you can address the health issue um, at hand and why that patient came in while weaving in conversations around um, violence. And that's how we train providers to do it, and it can really be done very, very efficiently. And it doesn't mean that you're going to be spending 15 minutes um, 
you know, sort of discussing the dynamics of domestic violence, uh, it does mean that you're going to be addressing the health issue with a, a framework that you know that violence may be impacting your patient's life. I mean, we've got one in four U.S. women experiencing domestic violence at some point in their life, and and that's way higher than some of the other uh, health issues that providers routinely screen for. So I guess the other thing I would say is many, many patients are not experiencing they're not in a place when they come in that they're going to necessarily need sort of a long uh, crisis intervention. I think providers feel nervous about what happens if she says yes and will my whole day and schedule be shot. And and it's important to recognize, one, that most patients um, are not going to be needing that kind of extensive intervention. Two, that there are local domestic violence um, programs um, that you can really connect with right there in the clinic and put the patient on the phone with those programs for support. And um, three, just like any health issue, if they came in with a major cardiac issue, sometimes the schedule does get get interfered with, and our role is really to help protect their health and safety. What's a, Maybe I'm asking a question you don't know, but it, went, it just crossed my mind. We do do that. When we go to the, I mean, that has happened in my family where we've gone to the doctor for something fairly routine. They find something and boom, next thing you know, you're there for, you know, 45 minutes and they're heading, heading you to the, the emergency room or something. So right, those things right. do happen. What is, I've never seen the statistics for comparing domestic violence incidents with things like heart attack and some of the other um, major health issues that women experience. Women experiencing domestic violence, one in four. How many women go to the doctor with high blood pressure? Do you know? I don't know offhand, those, but I do know it's really very, I mean, the prevalence is quite high. And like I say, it is higher than some of the major health issues. I think about prenatal care um, and how often we're screened for a whole host of issues in prenatal care um, around uh, the risk to um, the pregnancy but so many people are not being screened for domestic violence or not talking about domestic violence, and that is such a significant um, time of risk and also a time of opportunity for prevention and intervention. So, again, we really see it as an absolutely critical health issue, um, and unfortunately we know from our um, death review teams that um, by not asking, women really do fall through the cracks, and many, many times people who are killed by their partners had previously been to the the healthcare setting recently um, for services. So you just don't want to miss that opportunity where there is a crisis situation and you have this great opportunity to provide prevention um, and early intervention for those who are not in such significant crisis. I'm trying to think when was the last time that when I went to the doctor that I was even I was asked questions, general general questions about suicide, depression, um, general questions about um, health habits, you know, uh, um, alcohol, cigarettes, you know, that kind of thing. But I cannot recall, quite honestly, ever getting any kind of question about domestic violence. Hmm. So tell me how your project yeah. works and how is is that educating healthcare providers to ask the right questions. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I think many, many people would say the same, and, and and so what you're describing is how much work we still have to do in terms of making this the standard of care um, around talking about violence in the healthcare setting, and on the flip side, many providers are routinely asking, and so what it looks like is um, some of our programs, we have a number of um, programs, that model programs that we've been working on over uh, the last 10 and 15 years that really bring together um, public health uh, programs and other uh, hospitals and other healthcare providers um, together with their local domestic violence programs to um, build a partnership um, to train the providers how to talk about violence and how to respond. And as I mentioned, um, it really is a multi-step, very brief intervention with the with the healthcare provider. We train them to uh, disclose any limits of confidentiality, which many are very um, comfortable with. Um, but each law, each state has a different law about what's a mandated report um, around uh, a variety of different issues. So quick disclosure of um, any limits of confidentiality, a framing um, question that I mentioned sort of really normalize that they're not singling out this patient, that I'm talking to all my patients about violence, 
addressing the health care issue at hand with that kind of background in mind. And if somebody does disclose working on a care plan right then and there um, with the patient and offering a referral to their local domestic violence program. And that truly can happen in a very brief amount of time. Um, I mentioned putting a, a patient on the phone in clinic with a, a advocate if they're interested in doing that. And that's a really critical intervention. Um, many times uh, perpetrators monitor the use of cell phones. And so being able to offer a, a use of a phone right there in the clinic should the client want to talk to an advocate can be a very critical intervention. So that's what we're training providers to do, and many, many um, providers are doing that and have protocols. I mean, most of the major health associations across the country support this kind of intervention um, in their in their policies, and it's just about getting people comfortable and up to speed um, to, to do this work. Okay, Lisa, I'm going to ask you some specific questions, but first we have a mm-hmm. caller. Um, caller, are you there? Uh, yes, I am. This is Rita from Women's Genius. Oh, hi, Rita. How are you? I'm fine. Rita Henley-Jensen, welcome to the show. Rita is editor and founder of Women's E-News, which if you haven't gone there, you need to go to Women's E-News. It's the most comprehensive and uh, well-written publication on women and what's happening with them all over the world. I'm I'm a strong advocate for Women's (laughs) (laughs) E-News. And and me for your show, too. So, uh, although I don't have my own show just my own website and news organization. So I guess... <laughs> we'll work on it, quest- Rita. We'll work on it. <laughs> yeah, we'll work on it. So I guess my question is impact. Um, I get sort of mixed messages that things are a lot better now, um, but it seems you know, that uh, murder and, and and suicide are still the leading cause of death of pregnant women in the United States. So is is there a way to measure the impact of what you're doing in the overall community of women? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great question. Well, I mean, we are um, seeing a decrease overall in domestic violence um, and a significant decrease overall in the last 10 years. And we, we should all take a... An offer, a moment to celebrate that, um, and it's not enough. Um, so we're not seeing that decrease in the younger population at, like we'd like to, um, and we're still seeing far too much violence, obviously, in the lives of women. Specific to um, healthcare, uh, the kinds of measurements that we're really looking at, we we are starting to see more studies that uh, measure the impact of the kinds of interventions I'm describing, and what we're finding is that. Um, women report uh, a decrease in violence after a brief intervention around violence uh, uh, and um, some improvements in health and safety. So uh, decrease in depression, um, ability to monitor their own reproductive health, so a decrease in reproductive coercion. And so we're starting to see some true measurements around health and safety as a result of health intervention, but we need much more research to evaluate our interventions, um, much more investment in research to really uh, make understand the impact. Lisa, I, I have a question regarding that. Um, mm-hmm. It seems to me that as we started out the show talking about the first 30 years of talking about domestic violence, we were talking about physical safety. Um, the broken bones, the black eyes, the, you know, the kicks, the, the, the hits, the, all of that kind of stuff. Over the last few years, we've started to also recognize that domestic violence is more than physical violence, and that in fact, oftentimes the physical violence is preceded with years of other kinds of coercive behavior. Um, And Mm -hmm. I want to say psychological violence, emotional violence, I mean, there are all sorts of, of of terms that we use for this, but basically it's coercive control and it's living in hell for most women. Mm-hmm. I mm-hmm. have seen studies where this coercive behavior um, 
I mean, the whole chemical system of the body where um, if if I'm afraid of something, if I almost have a near miss on the freeway, we have all experienced that rush of adrenaline through our bodies and then that feeling of Mm -hmm. our bodies after that adrenaline rushes away. Imagine living with that 24-7 or 12 hours a day or whatever, and all of that adrenaline produces the cortisol, which produces all sorts of physical and and psychological things, the changes in the brain pathways. All of these things... Uh, from coercive control are every bit as damaging as a broken bone. In fact, I, I can't quote it, but I did see a study um, uh, where they interviewed women who had experienced coercive control and physical control, and overwhelmingly they all said, if I have to experience one of these again, give me the broken bone. That will heal. Don't make me live with that coercive beho- uh, or psychological uh, uh, control. Mm-hmm. So. Do you think that some of the question, uh, part of the question that Rita is asking is we are kind of getting a mixed message in that, yes, we've improved things, yes, we've improved things, but we've improved things when we're talking about that physical violence and knowledge and and resources for women who are experiencing uh, physical violence. I don't have proof of this, but I suspect that we have not, in fact, improved things very much for all of those women who experience coercive control. Mm-hmm. Well, Am I, I just on a yank um, here, or do you concur? Um, I don't think I'd say it quite that way, because I think when you see a decrease in domestic violence, as you described, um, domestic violence is a pattern of behaviors. It includes the physical violence, and um, it includes the coercive control and all the elements that you just talked to. And I definitely agree that m- the women that I talk to will lift up the psychological abuse as far more damaging than the physical um, abuse. So when they think about the worst, the worst incident, it is very often psychological or humiliation. Um, so I think when you see that decrease in violence, it includes both physical and emotional abuse. So that's where I would maybe frame it a little bit differently than okay. you did. But I also think um, that it's true that people don't always understand the impact of psychological abuse. And, and also people who are experiencing psychological abuse or coercive control won't always um, label it as domestic violence. So if you ask a question directly around, um, you know, are you a victim of domestic violence or do you feel safe at home, they might not uh, identify in that way. But if you ask questions around coercion, um, does your prov- partner prevent you from seeing your friends or family, um, interfere with your ability to come to the healthcare setting, interfere with your ability to take your medicine, then you start to see uh, much higher uh, rates of disclosure and much more opportunity to provide help and support. So, again, you're re- we're really, I think we're starting to advance and understand how to talk about this um, and uh, identify people in need it, without um, necessarily labeling, if that makes sense. Well, maybe, I, I guess what I'm trying to say in response to Rita's question is maybe we're we're getting kind of a mixed message that, yes, we have helped the physical violence a lot, um, but we're also learning and we're also educating and getting out there the fact that physical violence isn't, isn't all that domestic violence is about. So maybe we're kind of getting this mixed message of, uh, you know, yeah, we're doing well on that, but we, we've got this coming up. And, and so for the person who's not totally involved in domestic violence, maybe it's kind of a mixed message of, well, I thought we were doing better. No, I guess we're not doing better. How are we doing? Um, does I that make think, sense? I mean, I think it goes without saying that we're doing better. <laughs> we're definitely okay. doing better, and we have a long way to go. So better's not enough. Uh, we definitely have our seat. We've come a long way. Um, we've seen a decrease in violence, and we've seen a huge increase in how not only healthcare providers, but community members, be it coaches, judges, teachers, parents, see themselves as playing a role in prevention. So, hands down, we're doing better, and okay. it's not nearly enough. Sure. Um, Rita, does that answer your question? Uh, yes, but it raises the issue. I have. To, I just finished reading Behind the Smile, the story of Carol Mosley Brown's historic Senate campaign by Jeannie Morse. And it's the most detailed description I've seen of the destructive power of a controlling man. Um, Mm -hmm. And her boyfriend, uh, hyphen fiancé, 
uh, campaign manager. It, it was a classic description. So um, I would recommend reading that because he destroyed um, the first African-American female senator in the United States history. And it's mm-hmm. really sort of phenomenal. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, you mentioned uh, teenagers, and when I'm buying my lunch yesterday at, at Pret, uh, I overhear one of the uh, cashiers telling the other cashier, both female teens, are saying, no, he's too controlling. He's trying to control you. <laughs> so I was like, wow. So uh, that was very heartening. And so maybe there's this transition from the women of 92 and their understanding of what the violence really is. It's the it's denial of autonomy and respect, right? And yeah. and maybe the... the Latinas in New York City uh, are starting to get it. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Very that's good. why we need more and more um, programs like Project Connect, like some of our pilot programs that we're doing in the school-based health centers, for example, where it's really setting the climate of um, where violence is unacceptable. And so you see posters at the school, you have your school um, health center uh, talking routinely about violence, um, and now we're seeing that young people um, see, first of all, the health center as a place to turn for help, and also playing a real role um, as peer educators about with their friends and peers about what's a healthy and unhealthy relationship. So I'm I, like you, I'm very inspired by that. Um, <laughs> that kind really of shift. Nice. Yeah, yeah, it's wonderful, yeah. and um, that's that's the way we need to move. Is um, you know, around prevention and early intervention. You would not yeah. have heard that 10 years ago, I don't think. Yeah. Well, and it all no. comes yeah. down to, you know, educating every person, uh, not just professionals. Of course, it's all, you know, the trickle-down thing and all that stuff. But we have to have a, a, a populace that understands what coercion and control and all that kind of stuff is before we can actually say we've we've licked this problem. But I think you're right. Mm-hmm. I think the education component is really charging ahead. So, Rita, thank you very much thank for you. calling thank in. You. Thank and, you. Thank uh, you. Keep up the good work. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye, Bye-bye. Rita. So Rita brought up a good good point. I, I'm encouraged to hear that, you know, she's just out in, in, in a public place, and boom, she, she hears a conversation. Uh, about you know, control and and um, you know that that shows how far we've come. I think um, you know 20 years ago um, you wouldn't have had that heard that conversation um, at least not out in a public place. I don't think. But uh, you know one of the things, Lisa, in looking at the program, well, I want to know more about Project Connect and exactly how it operates. But then I want to also ask, how is it different? among, for example, campuses or um, uh, public health settings or private health care settings? How, how is this different? Is it a different approach? Does it need to be a different approach? You know, that kind of thing. But first of mm-hmm. all, tell me more about, specifically about Project Connect. What is okay. it designed? Uh, I think we've talked about what it's designed to do, but how is it implemented and how are you making it work? So uh, Project Connect is a program um, that uh, is supported by uh, the Office on Women's Health at the Department of Health and Human Services. And um, we brought together, we had two phases, but so we brought together in the last phase, um, it was uh, six states and um, five uh, native health centers. And in the states, we brought together um, public health leaders, so largely um, uh, directors of the maternal child health programs and other uh, women's health programs um, who oversee those programs at the state level. We brought them together with the domestic violence uh, program and sexual violence programs and worked with them to create a plan to make this uh, system-wide um, uh, or statewide in terms of their response in these public health programs. And so the difference with public health is, of course, you have an opportunity to do some pilot programs in each of the states. So each of the states identified a number of clinics um, where we did some intensive training and partnership um, with them. But they also have this great opportunity to then change their state public health um, programs so that now 
for example, every teen pregnancy prevention program in one state is um, has a requirement around training about healthy relationships and unhealthy relationships and how to ask. And so embedding it in these programs that you hear a lot about, like teen pregnancy prevention or pregnant and parenting teen programs or home visitation programs, which are for the new parents, um, really embedding um, violence prevention and response as a part of those programs and making that um, a sort of a requirement statewide. So Project Connect really brought together um, advocates and public health providers to do that. And in our uh, Native health settings, looked at uh, clinics that serve primarily Native Americans and, again, connecting up with local domestic violence programs to provide the, this assessment and response in the clinics directly. So that's Project Connect. Um, do you have questions about that, or should I go? Because it does look different in campuses versus public health and so forth. Yeah, no, please go go ahead and start. Okay. Tell, let's start so, with college yeah. campuses. How so, does it look there? Yeah, so college campuses, obviously, there's been a lot of visibility, um, a lot of need for more raised visibility uh, around sexual assault. Um, I'd say the work in co uh, campuses is, is more focused on sexual assault, is more integrated um, into efforts to also look at alcohol abuse, um, and has in the past been more um, sort of student-led and, and around uh, awareness raising um, generally. We are really working to also place it a, an important focus on the campus health center as a place that students go to routinely, and again, another opportunity for prevention and early intervention. So we're looking at a study right now in multiple settings in um, Pennsylvania, multiple college health centers, to look at what's the difference between an intervention that only focuses on um, alcohol abuse um, and, and its impact on sexual assault versus how uh, how can you devise a program for students that addresses sexual assault prevention as well as alcohol abuse and whether or not you'll see a re real decrease. So um, it just looks a little different in those campus health centers. In adolescent health centers, it's much more focused on really early intervention. What is a healthy relationship? How might um, text, textual or cyber abuse um, be a, a sort of a warning sign of future um, abusive relationships and, and really um, shaping your messages so that they're more age appropriate and are more appropriate for teens. So with each setting, you adapt a bit. Um, in reproductive health settings, you focus primarily on that coercive control as it relates to reproductive health. And so whether or not the partner is trying to get them pregnant when they don't want to be um, putting them at risk for sexually transmitted infections. And so with each of our projects, we really tailor the intervention for um, the setting so that it makes more sense to the survivor and the patient and also to the provider. Yeah. Um, so tell me how it works, okay? I'm I'm a girl on a on campus. Um, do I have to seek out? Do I have to have a, an inkling that I might be in an abusive relationship and seek out this assistance? Or would I stop at the uh, campus, uh, uh, whatever the Pill Hill is called there, and and then be screened? Or how how does it work? Mm -hmm. Well, how we'd like to see it work on campuses is that the um, student goes into the campus health center for whatever reason that they are going in there for. Very often it's for reproductive health, but not only reproductive health services. And the campus health providers are... Um, prepared to talk, again, universal education about healthy and unhealthy relationships. Should there ever be a problem, you know where to come for help, and this is how violence can impact your health. And so very quick universal education, resources offered, um, and asking the patient if they are in immediate need. If they're not, sharing a small brochure about where they can get help or where a friend or a family member could get help. And so that's it. It's pretty straightforward, and it, it, it's really not um, very complicated. It's addressing their health issue in a trauma-informed way. Okay. So if I'm a, a, a college woman, a campus woman, and I have a cold, and it's a really bad mm -hmm. cold, and I go uh, to mm -hmm. the clinic, the campus clinic, 
uh, I can expect to be asked about my cold and why I'm there, but then I can also expect to be getting some sort of information about mm-hmm. domestic violence. Um, is there a screening tool that's used, a questionnaire or anything like that? A number of settings use a screening tool, and we talked about that earlier in the program. We really recommend universal education so that you move away from that checklist approach. So what we recommend is that a provider, you know, look the um, patient in the eye, uh, hand them a brochure, um, and we have a number of these brochures free of charge uh, through our National Health Resource Center on domestic violence. We have them for campus health settings, for adolescent health, for reproductive health. So but um, please go to our website um, at futureswithoutviolence backslash health for those materials. But then they hand the brochure and say, I'm talking to all my patients about violence um, and healthy and unhealthy relationships because I know it impacts your health. And have a very brief conversation, provide the brochure, ask if it's happening to them, and if not, let them know. Should this ever happen, you can always come here for support. Okay. All right, and hand them the brochure. Now, what mm-hmm. happens if... One uh, thing the, I'll share, uh, share is we actually have them hand um, at least two brochures because so many clients and patients um, in a variety of settings have, set, have used them as peer education with their friends and family members. So they can pass it yeah. on to a friend. Exactly, um, yeah. Okay, all right. So I'm there, I get the 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 question, I get the brochure, and what happens if I say, start bursting tears or whatever and say, yes, this is me? Yeah. So then um, the Campus Health Center should be equipped to, if somebody does say yes, I'm really sorry that that happened to you. Um, there is help available. I'm glad you told me. And so then immediately addressing their ur- urgent health issues and, again, putting them on the phone with an advocate in their community or the national hotline um, or the local sexual assault um, provider should they be ready for that um, kind of intervention. So offering a whole host of um, next steps for her to decide. It could, if, if she has been sexually assaulted, it could include a rape kit, but it doesn't have to if that's not the direction that she wants to go in. But offering her options addressing her health, and connecting her to an advocate. Okay. How, if 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 at all, is that different from, say, um, dealing with um, um, uh, a native uh, health population? Well, in the native health settings, um, again, you are addressing a whole host of health issues, not just um, reproductive health and not only looking at sexual assault. And the the program that we did in um, through Project Connect is really uh, we partnered with a, a group of Native faculty to really tailor the um, intervention so that it was culturally specific to each one of those settings. And so talking more generally about how their particular um, culture um, sort of responds to um, violence and also the history of resistance from violence. Um, in their culture, and then, again, addressing the health issues. So the core intervention is the same in terms of uh, talking about violence, addressing health issues, and providing a warm referral. But in those settings, it was really uh, tailored to tap into the strengths um, of their uh, cultural pride in order to be a key healing uh, um, opportunity. Okay. And what if I just go to my family doctor here in Washington State? Mm-hmm. Is there any so, it, it, any yeah. connection? I noticed that uh, on your website there's a connection with the Project Connect with the Nooksack Tribe, but um, what about just other people, you know, just the regular clinics uh, that I would go yeah. to or my private doctor? So, again, the, the core elements of the um, intervention would remain the same, but in a, in a primary care setting it might be more focused on um, chronic health issues um, or you might not be addressing something specific like reproductive health. It would just be, again, I'm talking to all my patients about violence, uh, providing the referral, and addressing whatever. um, What we're really focusing on is a visit-specific intervention, so um, addressing why the patient is there, but at the same time uh, providing an opportunity to educate about domestic violence. And if they're experiencing um, problems sleeping, if they're experiencing uh, asthma, then addressing kind of a care plan in the context of that abusive relationship 
But many, many people won't be um, ready for that disclosure. So um, if you're a patient walking in, we want to see that you see that the provider knows about the connection of violence and health. Should you want to disclose or should you experience that, you know where to go for help and that the provider is connected um, to other local domestic violence programs who can also help as well. Okay. So um, it's, it, tell me about specifically about Project Connect. Are you uh, affiliating with certain things? Have certain um, uh, clinics or groups signed on with the project, so to speak, mm-hmm. or is it a global uh, effort? How, how does the project itself work? Well, the Project Connected, it's actually just coming to a close. It was a multi, multi-year initiative funded by the Department of Health, Office on Women's Health, and we did select um, state partnerships um, through an application process. So there was an application process. People had to apply um, to really demonstrate that they're poised to do this work um, and at the state level and also at the uh, local level in the Native Health Centers. And then we worked with them for three years in each phase to train and um, implement that clinical intervention that I just described and and then create the policy change that I described as well. Project Connect is one of a number of different multi-site initiatives. We also have um, one with 19 communities here in California. We're launching two new um, uh, pilot programs, one in six clinics across the country, um, particularly in uh, community health centers serving very high-need, um, uh, underserved patients. And another testing a uh, intervention that um, is similar to what I described but also uses a, a online decision aid, um, safety aid, so that patients can leave. If they have a mobile phone, they can use or at home on their computer, they can um, develop their own safety and health decision aid and plan um, using that technology. So we have a number of different initiatives where we're bu- building um, partnerships, and the core, core element across the board is partnerships between health and domestic violence, educating providers to know that they can uh, play a critical role in early identification and response, and bringing along, uh, educating the um, patients so they know violence impacts their health and providers can help. Okay. So what's in the future? You said the project is coming to a close. So so what's what's down the road here? Mm-hmm. So actually, um, it's coming to a close, and the next stage of uh, programs for the Office on Women's Health is um, a number of different um, – they're doing a number of different studies across the country um, to look at what are the kind of uh, – what's the evidence base around health response to violence, and one of those – programs is the one that I just described where we're um, testing an intervention in three different states that relies on universal education response and also includes this uh, technology-enhanced decision aid as well. So that's just launching. It's one of, uh, I think it's five projects um, funded by the Office on Women's Health um, that are testing a variety of different strategies. Um, And uh, so that's the next stage for for, uh, Project Connect. And there are a number of other initiatives funded here in California by the Blue Shield of California Foundation. And, of course, our um, support from the Family Violence Prevention and Services Program to house the Health Resource Center on Domestic Violence. That's ongoing. Okay. And and is this a separate – tell us a little bit about Futures Without Violence. I mean, Futures Without Mm -hmm. Violence is such a comprehensive organization, but just – wants to go online and look at Futures Without Violence and, and learn more about uh, the health initiatives and the health programs, um, what, what will they find there? What does Futures Without Violence do? So Futures Without Violence, we've been working for over 30 years um, to really uh, promote um, programs that promote social justice, health, and safety. And we work in a variety of different settings. Um, we, we really see that that. Uh, we're trying to um, really engage all um, parts of our community in order to respond to violence. So we really see that everybody has a role. So you'll see on our website that we're working with coaches um, to educate coaching boys into men and to really educate um, young boys about violence prevention. 
We're working with teachers in the education system to um, identify opportunities to work with youth who may be exposed to violence and and, and address violence. Um, we work with workplaces and employers um, to make the connection around their role in responding to uh, domestic violence. And we have a whole um, very comprehensive and robust um, public education campaign where we're really working to change the norms about uh, and the acceptance of gender-based violence uh, across the, the, the globe, really. Um, so our healthcare initiative is one of many initiatives that we um, work on. We also have a very robust program um, working to address um, uh, violence with, among children, youth, and teens. So we have a pretty comprehensive um, program, and our healthcare um, program, as I mentioned, houses the National Health Resource Center on Domestic Violence. So anybody who's interested in learning more, any of your listeners who are interested in learning more about the healthcare response to violence and how to get involved, um, can contact our Health Resource Center. Um, we've been working for over 20 years to provide technical assistance and training and policy reform around health and violence. And we hope okay, we one can of provide the, materials. Mm -hmm. Great. One of the things that um, I um, uh, ran across, I, I think I mentioned to you that I'm doing my dissertation, and my um, committee chair did a study um, several years ago about um, compliance with um, um, health recommendations. Uh, and mm -hmm. I'm, I'm probably butchering this. If she's listening, I apologize, Mary. Um, <laughs> but um, her finding, as I recall, was that um, domestic violence, in fact, interferes with um, uh, the ability or the, the 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 end result of whether or not a woman can comply uh, or will comply or does comply with um, uh, the health care recommendations. Have you found anything like that in, in your work and in your analysis of all this stuff? Mm -hmm. Yes, we really have. And and try to um, shift the conversation around that concept of compliance when you're working with a patient who's experiencing violence. So very often we um, see what they pay, providers might call frequent flyers, people who are in the health setting um, repeatedly and who may not be uh, really um, responding to the care plan um, as, that the provider um, is put forward. And that, that causes a lot of frustration. But a lot of times we've uh, recognized that really what's underneath um, the problems with being able to comply with that care plan is that they have a partner who's interfering, um, who's preventing them from sleeping, who's interfering with their medication, who, who's um, directly interfering with their birth control, who is hiding their medication or preventing them from um, coming to the doctor. And one example would be um, we we worked with a provider in, in West Virginia, and she was um, working with a patient who uh, was experiencing depression and um, uh, obesity, and they were developing a plan for her um, to get more exercise. And she said, well, I, I, I really can't do that. My, my husband wouldn't let me go to the gym or go walking outside. And because the provider had been trained about domestic violence, she was able to talk a little bit more about what that looks like in that patient's relationship and to provide, um, it turns out she was in a very abusive relationship, so she um, connected the patient up with a local domestic violence program, but she also devised an exercise plan that she could do inside um, her home, you know, working with on yoga and using online uh, exercise tools so that she could start to build her own health and confidence and safety at the same time that she was working with a local domestic violence um, program. So that's one example of how you can really uh, work on your care plan um, in a way that's trauma-informed. When we started the show, I told you about an incident um, that happened probably 10 or 12 years ago with me, with my own personal physician, uh, when I asked her, you know, I, I, nobody's ever asked me uh, about domestic violence, and her response was, well, gee, you know, it's the, that's kind of the floodgates thing. If we ask, then we have to be prepared to have the time to deal with it, and we don't. Mm -hmm. So we just don't ask. And um, that's kind of sad, but on the other hand, I can understand, you know, what she's saying. I, I you know, I mean, I, I, she's not coming, you know, she's not 
doing that to be mean. She's just looking at, at you know, what she has to handle. Um, nevertheless, um, when I go to the physician today, I still have never been asked. I've never had mm-hmm. any kind of screening tool offered to me. I've never had any, and I've changed physicians probably two or three times in that last 10 or 12 years. Um, how rare is it for, or how, how do I want to phrase this? Am I an anomaly, or is it still pretty tough to have um, the average woman go to the average healthcare provider and actually get some knowledgeable uh, information about domestic violence? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say that it still is not the standard of care across the country, but that that's changing slowly. So um, more and more providers are recognizing that they can do this in an efficient and effective way. They're recognizing they can ask briefly, um, that they'll know what to do if a patient says yes, and that they have local resources that support them, and that there's tools and resources to help them. They don't have to recreate the wheel. So increasingly it is becoming the standard of care and the new policy changes um, that we've seen um, to support this are are pretty major and I think really will um, turn the tide. So the support to the Affordable Care Act, um, the coverage requirement for screening and brief counseling, and the recommendation through the U.S. Preventive Service Task Force to screen and provide brief counseling, and the endorsement of all the most of the major health associations to provide screening and brief counseling for domestic violence are all behind this shift. But like any change in practice, it does take time. So um, I think a lot of providers are doing it, and a lot of providers, we have a lot more to go in terms of education and, and making this the standard of care. So next time I go to my doctor's office, what can I do to encourage them to become more active in this? So next time you go, bring the resources that are free um, at, to all providers across the country. Bring an example of some of the patient resources that you can download from our website at futureswithoutviolence.org. Um, and that's dot org. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, yep. Yeah, that's a dot org. Um, yep. And, and bring those health uh, resources and, and encourage your provider to start to ask about violence and encourage them to contact the National Health Resource Center on Domestic Violence for more um, materials to help train them um, to do this so that they can do it confidently. And also to the listeners who might be experiencing violence, I really want to underscore that there is help available and and the national hotline is always available, um, 1-800-799-799. Seven two, three three. Yep. Yeah, Lisa. Thank you so much. And I'm going to download these things. You know, I, I always go in every time I go in. I and I know they're overburdened. I know they have lots of, of of questions to ask. But I'm finding more and more that they walk in and they sit at the computer. They ask me some questions, but they're typing at the computer. And I could, you know, morph into you know Jabba the Hut right in front of them, and they wouldn't even notice because they're looking at their computer. And um, I want to be a human being when I go there. And I think that I want to be a human being that knows that my health care providers are aware that, you know, (laughs) nearly a third of the women in the United States are experiencing domestic violence in one form or another. And I think that if nearly a third of women were having heart attacks or nearly a third of women were sprouting third ears, there would be a huge health care push to educate and and treat women with that. So I plan on downloading some of those materials, and I plan on taking them with me, and I hope you do too. Lisa, one of the things that we do in in ending the show is I usually come up with a quote. Well, today I have a quote from statistics from um, a a website on the um, Family Violence Prevention Fund, and I think it exemplifies. In addition to injuries sustained during violent episodes, physical and psychological abuse are linked to a number of adverse physical health effects, including arthritis, chronic neck or back pain, migraine, frequent headaches, stammering, problems seeing, sexually transmitted infections, chronic uh, pelvic pain, stomach ulcers, and the list goes on and on. Domestic violence is a huge health issue, um, and it continues to be a health issue even if the the person is able to leave the uh, particular abusive situation. Those health uh, consequences linger. Don't you agree, Lisa? 
I absolutely agree, and that is exactly why healthcare providers really um, have to make the time to address this issue and that it will help them reach their own goals for promoting health and safety with their patients. Um, it's worth the time. It, there's uh, resources available for providers and patients, and it's absolutely critical um, core component of uh, a healthcare service to be addressing violence um, in their setting. So next time you visit your doctor or clinic, um, why don't you just nicely suggest that this is something that they need to be doing? And yes, we know they're busy, but this is important too. Thank you exactly. so much, Lisa James. Uh, thank you for the work you do. Thank you to Futures Without Violence, and thank you, listeners. Please join us next week. Next week we're going to be having a show uh, with a woman who's local to me. She is in Washington State, and uh, she went back to school as an adult, as I, and uh, she has done work on first responders and trauma with first responders. So thank you for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. See you next week. Thank right. you.